Morning. All right, like Tim said, this is super cute, but let's sit down. I've got a lot, so I'm going to try to not go long today. We're going we're gonna to plow through this, but um, I'm glad that you're here. So today, if you see on your bulletins, uh, is Global Sunday. So we do this annually. This is uh, the third year that we have done a Global Sunday. Um, I'm very excited about it. So to have a focus on missions, uh, cross-cultural missions and evangelism is uh, very exciting for me. Uh, I think I think there's there's a lot of organizations here represented down in the gym. So would love for you to go down there, uh, visit with some of our missionaries are in town, and so they're at some of their tables talking about the work that they've got going on. Some organizations are here. Uh, thank them for coming and see about the work that they're doing. Maybe there's a way that you can be involved. Uh, also, this is really neat to me. Is you got a bulletin, you received one of these, hopefully one per family. Um, This is a global missions prayer guide. So all the missions stuff that is directly, that God is working directly through LCF, you're going to find quite a bit of information and prayer points in there uh, about our missions endeavors. And I would love for you to work through this book and pray uh, over the things that God is doing here around the world. Um, I do want to take a second to thank uh, John Skillman, Ben Wagonar, Bill and Kyretta Holbrook, Michelle Schweitzer, um, Jim Stites, Corey Thomason. They worked a lot on uh, making this what it is. And so it took a lot of work and a lot of people, um, but it's a really neat resource for our church to have. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, so go down to the gym, interact with the organizations, with some of the missionaries, learn some things. Uh, there's different ways that you can even volunteer your time. Uh, we'd love for you to do that. And um, just take, and there's 480 donuts down there. So if for no other reason, just uh, get your fix of sugar this morning. I thought we should just bring in wheelbarrows of sugar and hand out spoons. But I guess donuts are more satisfying to the palate. Uh, anyway... So today we're going to spend our time uh, in the text a little differently than normal. We're in Hebrews, obviously, and just working right through it as we have been. As Tim pointed out at the beginning of the Hebrew series, the writer of Hebrews is insanely intelligent. Uh, It's sometimes difficult to go verse by verse, kind of point by point, like you do with a Pauline epistle. Uh, But what I want us to do today is to take a step back and to not walk through the text point by point, but to actually like walk around it so that we can see some things that are within it. So some of this will be dense, so hang with me in those times, uh, and we'll get through it together. together. And so doing, we're going to come across four points. And not just like points, but actually four things that we see. So there's four truths that are pouring out from this text that I want to point out today. So my aim for today through the grace of God and the power of His Spirit and in His Word, is to change the trajectory of your life. And I mean that, really, in a multitude of ways. I don't want us to walk out of these doors the same way we came in. And by the grace of God, He'll make that so. So, unfortunately, I don't have an opening story or illustration or anything like I would like to have. I did have a really cool one lined up about Da Vinci, but I don't have time for it. So, we're going to jump right in. So let's read our text, Hebrews 2, 5 through 13. 
I'll pray, and then we will dive in together. Hebrews 2, 5 through 13, this is the word of the Lord. For he was not subjected to angels, the world to come, that we are talking about. But someone somewhere has testified, what is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. And I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our souls before you, our hearts. Lord, we lift our minds to you. God, would you open up secret truths that you have within this text, God that it would work in us and through us, that it would change us, Lord, that your word would take root, that it would divide as a sword, that would cut bone from marrow. Father, use this morning to bring about glory for your name and your kingdom and in this city and around the world. Father, I do pray that each word that I speak that is from you falls on hearing ears, Lord, and each syllable that comes off my lips that is not from you, Lord, is not heard and falls on deaf ears. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for what it does in our life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence with us today and using this word to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So our first point, the first thing that we see in this text is we see a divine man. The first major thing that we see in this section is the connection of, to the son of humanity. There's his, his humanity of this son. So all of chapter 1 has been showing us that this son, by the way, this, this title, the son, has been used five times leading up to these verses. No actual name has been given yet in this book. But this son, he's divine. Okay, remember what Tim has so giftedly taught us over the last several weeks is that God has spoken through his son. In chapter 1, the son is the radiance of God's glory and exact expression of his nature. The son sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The son has a throne that lasts forever and ever. The son is greater than angels and more and more and more. There is no question about the divinity of this son. And we can't forget that. We can't forget what we've already heard from the Hebrew writer leading into this section, because a lot of times we tend to do that when we only break down sections, you know, in church over the course of several weeks. We forget what we heard four weeks ago, right? The Son is 
established as divine. So we need to keep that in mind. And in verse 5, we see the writer uh, of Hebrews connect chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 14 to here. So I'm going to read them together, cutting out chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which is kind of a timeout there. So 1.13, now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. The Son is divine, but now the writer of Hebrews wants to show us that he's human. He's fully human. And to do that, this writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 to make the point of this divine son being fully human. You're probably familiar with the psalm. Uh, And in verse 6, he starts to quote it. So let's read 2, 6 through 8, 9. You've probably heard this. What is man that you remember him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. You see, this psalm, Psalm 8, is a psalm written by David, and it's about humans. It's a human psalm. David is writing this psalm, uh, contemplating the expanse of the universe. He's contemplating God's magnificent creation. And he says, what is man? So David says it straightforward in Psalm 8.3. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place... What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? This is a very human-rooted text. And if we think about it seriously, I was thinking about it this week, and so last week, I was in the mountains in Colorado and in Denver. I had a wedding to attend there, and it was my anniversary to my lovely wife, and we spent some time up in the mountains and just the, the massive boulders and the power of the peaks. The mountains are my favorite place to be. And it's easy to remember how small you are when you're up in those mountains. But to get there, I had to fly from Beirut, Lebanon, which is where I was the previous week. So 15 hours in the air, going 600 miles per hour to get to Denver. An insignificant creature as I am in a tube that hurdles you through the air to get you somewhere. It's amazing. Even more than that, my son Ridge and I were watching a documentary about black holes. We don't watch cartoons, I guess. We just do stuff like watching black hole documentaries about how it can be stretched into annihilation if we got into one. Uh, We're not a morbid family, though, I swear. Uh, But anyway, we're watching this documentary on black holes. And on September 14th, 2015... The sound was recorded of two black holes 1.3 billion light years away merging together as one in a massive and incomprehensible collision that sent gravitational waves tearing through space at the speed of light. Two black holes over 30 times the mass of the sun sending waves that stretch and contract the fabric of time. And I'm six foot one. I mean, do you feel insignificant yet? This is what David was talking about. The expanse of your heavens. Who is man? But all of this visible creation, somehow, 
humanity is the most prized. Just below the angels, says David, there sits humanity. And this divine son, he's also fully human. So the section from Psalm 8 about subjecting everything under his feet is used multiple times throughout the New Testament. You know, we, we see a lot. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my, your footstool. Uh, and subjected everything under his feet. That's used multiple times throughout the, the, Old, or the New Testament to describe the divinity of this son. But only here in Hebrews is the what is man, the son of man, section quoted and applied to this son as well. The writer of Hebrews does an eloquent job of connecting divinity and humanity in this son. And for the first time in the book, we see that this man, in verse 9, is Jesus. It's the first time it uses his name, the son's human name, the physical person. See, the writer intentionally begins this quote with the verse, with this verse, in order to assert Christ's humanity. That's why he uses this quote from David. And just as man is a little lower than the angels, as David posits in Psalm 8, so does the incarnation of Christ take this mountain-moving globe-spanning, black hole-colliding, exact expression of the glory of God and place himself lower than the angels. It's a divine son who's also a man. And it is this divine man, Jesus, who is the one for which all things are subject to. And that's our, our second point. The second thing that we see in this text, we see a crown that leads to subjection. So the text seemingly moves back and forth about the subjection of creation. Verse 5, God has not placed the new world, the great salvation, the forever throne and subjection to angels, right? But verse 8, God subjected everything under the feet of the Son of Man who was made lower than the angels. Also in verse 8, nothing was left that was not subjected to him. And in the last phrase of verse 8, we see, as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. So everything's in subjection to Jesus. Think about back to verse 13, chapter 1. All of his enemies are being built into his own personal footstool. The world to come is subjected to him, yet there is an already and not yet expression happening here. Everything is subjected under his feet, yet we do not fully see this as of it is right now. This is the view of the kingdom of God that, that this kingdom has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. And that will come at the return of Jesus at his parousia. So the world to come has been subjected to him, verse 5, but what, what world is that? What world are we talking about if it's not one that we can see that we live in right now? It's one that is to come. Well, the book has already been explaining that to us. It is the world where his enemies are his footstool, Hebrews 1.13. The world where there's an inheritance of salvation, Hebrews 1.14. The world where there is such a great salvation, Hebrews 2.3. And the world to come where believers will enter into his rest, Hebrews 4. Why is this world to come fully subjected to him? Well, because... He's the one that wears the crown. 
He's the one that has all the glory. He's the one that has all the honor. Remember, this is the divine man. We've established that. Yes, he was made lower than the angels, but then he was crowned with glory and honor. And it took a lot for him to be crowned with this glory and honor. This is the incredible truth that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get to. The incarnation of Jesus was a must. God had to become man. The taste of death was a must. Jesus had to conquer the devil and his most powerful tool. And all of this is because it was God's grace. See that in verse 9. God holds the glory of the cosmos. He owns all the honor. He is the king that holds the crown. Yet all of that is given to Jesus through his suffering, which is by God's grace and by God's plan. All of that has been mentioned thus far in the book is leading to this point. That the incarnation, the suffering death, the exaltation to glory and honor of the Son of God through that death was all necessary. Jesus acted in accord with God's initiative and purposes. His saving death was accomplished by and was the outworking of God's grace. As President of Southern Seminary Albert Moeller puts it more eloquently than I, Jesus is not crowned simply because he is the God-man and therefore worthy of all divine prerogatives. Instead, the author mentions that he has been crowned with glory and honor because he has fulfilled his messianic task of suffering and death. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death. The last Adam plunged into death for the sake of humanity. Jesus, worthy of all praise, glory, honor, the radiance of God's glory, the sustainer of all things by the power of his word, made lower than the angels to be as humanity, to not deserve death, but to taste it anyway, that you might taste life and then crowned with glory, with honor, all things subjected unto him. There's three things I want to take a time out here to point out uh, before we move on, or two, two things I want to take note on. First, this is the gospel, yeah? Different than all other world religions where you ascend to God, God came down for you. Do you know this gospel? And not just like know it, because mental ascent is easy enough, but do you know this gospel? Do you believe this gospel? Do you trust this good news? Do you bank your existence and your eternity on it. How beautiful the news that you and I, we deserve death for God to turn his back on us and to leave it that way. But he, Jesus, stepped 
out of his glory, removed his honor, laid down his crown, knowing that he would pick it up back through, only through, suffering and death, but did so, so that you could have life. Friend, if you don't trust in this great king, this wonderful savior, I do plead with you today to consider that. Second thing to point out before we move on, this book was written to a group of believers and one of the main threads throughout this book is perseverance and faith through the trials that they were encountering. So everything I just said about this gospel, does it not stir your emotions if you're a believer? Empower your convictions. Root your worship in Christ no matter what you have going on in your life. Lord, forgive us when your message of your gospel does not hit us with such force. Amen. So this crown that has been restored on the exalted King Jesus leads to the subjection of all things in the world to come. Not only that, but it unites and brings together a family of God, though there is hardship along the way. So that's our our third point. The third thing that we see is that we see a family united through suffering. The suffering that Jesus bore was to receive the crown and the glory and the honor, but it was also to purchase back a family. At the end of verse 9, because, see the word because, he suffered death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Through doing that, verse 10, he brought many sons and daughters into glory as well. It was entirely appropriate for it to be this way, Verse 10, it was because of God and through God that all things exist. Therefore, it is His plan. And if it's His plan, it's the perfect plan to bring His family to Himself through this means. There was a chasm, and so in steps the work of Jesus. And by fulfilling His own sonship through providing redemption, the Son brings the salvation of many to fruition as well. As New Testament scholar Gareth Lee Cockerill points out, thus his incarnate suffering was integral to the Son's person as the ultimate revelation of God's nature. The pastor would persuade his hearers by enabling them to see and feel the way in which the suffering of the Savior was most appropriate to God's character in light of their need. For the writer of Hebrews, this is the way of showing how the offense of the cross is the beauty of redemption that ravishes the soul. Those in Christ, in the family of God, because of the Son, are built into a unit, a family unit. And look at this thread all through the passage. Verse 9, Jesus tasted death on behalf of man and was crowned with glory and honor. Verse 10, Jesus brought many sons and daughters to glory. Verse 11, Jesus sanctifies those sons and daughters and they share with him in communion with the Father. Verse 11 also, Jesus is not ashamed to call these glorious sons and daughters his brothers and sisters. 
Verse 12, having become human, Jesus is united with man. And in that union, he's not ashamed of his brothers and sisters, but will proclaim their names before the great assembly in heaven. Verse 13, Jesus stands in triumph, presenting the children of God, given to him through his conquering. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, children and a father. This is a family that we get to enter into. And if you trust Christ, you are united with a family that spans the globe and crosses the eons. It's a family. That's why there's so much love amongst believers anywhere you go in the world. Jesus accomplished all of this through God's perfect will via His suffering and His death. I think it's vital to point something out here given the context of the book that we're reading. So this book was written to exalt Christ and to keep those in suffering from drifting away, as Tim talked about two weeks ago. So Charles Swindoll says that the suffering motif of Jesus in the book of Hebrews would have been particularly important to Jewish Christians in Rome who were struggling under Nero's persecution and were considering moving back towards the Mosaic law, this drifting. The writer of Hebrews shows these Jewish Christian believers that though they are faced with suffering, they were indeed following a better way. And... They should persevere through that. So I want to posit to you this morning three types of suffering throughout Scripture that I see. The first is eternal suffering. Okay, this is all through Scripture, but just to have an example and to prove the point is 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which tells us that those who don't trust and obey the gospel of Christ will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction away from the Lord. Eternal suffering. Okay, the second is natural suffering, which happens because of the fall. This is seen in the decay of creation and the wearing down of our bodies, excuse me, and uh, sin and death, even just in life as well. There's natural suffering. Uh, Luke 13 points this out in a unique way. Jesus shows that natural suffering, sometimes it just happens. A building in Luke 13 fell on and killed 18 people. Undoubtedly, those families were affected and went through a lot of suffering because of that. But it wasn't because they were sinful or anything like that. Jesus said, it just happened. It's just the groaning of creation and the suffering of the natural world. It wasn't from something that they had done or some punishment that they had. It just happened. Now, God does use natural suffering to bring about sanctification in our life. Uh, In this text, we'll talk about sanctification. He does use that. Um, But there's a level, and there's a level of that here in our passage, for sure, because Jesus obviously died the death that we will die. But there's also a lot more than that here in our text, and it's the third type of suffering, one that I want to call proclamational suffering. So remember Dr. Swindoll's quote, right? The Jewish Christians were suffering under Nero. 
Why they suffered was because they proclaimed a new king. They proclaimed a new kingdom. They could have kept their mouth shut and they would have been just fine. And we see this everywhere in Scripture. Even in Jesus, it is what Jesus said that got him placed on the cross. He could have lived a much longer life, a probably very happy one. So think about maybe John 10, verses 27 through 33. Jesus, he equates himself, calls himself the great shepherd. What he's essentially saying there, if you don't have the Old Testament context, is he's saying, I am Yahweh. I am God from the Old Testament. I am the great shepherd from Ezekiel 34. So the Jews pick up stones to kill him for saying that. And Jesus replies, you know, guys, I've, I've shown you many good works from my father. For which one of my works are you going to stone me for? You know what the Pharisees' response is? Well, we're not going to stone you for good works, but for blasphemy. Because being a man, you make yourself God. You see, Jesus could do good works all day long. No one minded as long as it wasn't on a Sabbath, obviously. But it was his message that got him killed. It was the message that Paul spoke that got him imprisoned and eventually beheaded. It is the message that is being heard throughout Somalia and Iran and Iraq and India and other places like these that is getting brothers and sisters killed. It is not because they work at a, at a good NGO. So I'm all for good works, all for them. They are necessary for the church to do. But there's two things about good works that I want to point out. One is they are not implicitly missions. If evangelism is not the primary, and I mean the primary objective and endeavor overseas in the work that is going on, it is not missions. It is humanitarian work. It is philanthropic work. Both good things, great things. I've been watching a documentary about Bill Gates and the philanthropic work that he's doing to knock out polio and bring sanitation to the world. Amazing, necessary work that I wish the church was leading in. Bill Gates is an agnostic. And even atheists take part in these types of work. Doctors Without Borders, I think, one of the greatest NGOs in the world, go to places Christians won't even go most of the time to, to maybe give their life to help others. Are they on mission for God? Are they doing missions? Of course not. Missions is a work of God, and God is about His spoken message because His spoken message is what saves if you remember back in our Roman series, the gospel does what? Saves. There's a power unto God for salvation. Second thing is that good works will hardly, if ever, land you in any type of suffering. No one is upset, as with was the case with Jesus, if you do some nice things. 
People and governments in the countries I mentioned are not fuming with hatred because you bring their people food or build some nice houses. Even in the States, no one's up in arms if you pay for their Starbucks or give out soup at a soup kitchen or volunteer for their kids' sports team. Again, hear me, those are all great things. And I do those things, and I want us to do those things. But we have to remember, it is through proclamation that suffering comes. Jesus said that he came to pit man against father, daughter against mother, and that he came with a sword. And that sword is the message of the gospel. It divides. And we know that, we quote that verse, we say that. And so I ask you three things as we move on. One, if you do not, and they're all in relation to these three sufferings, if you do not know Jesus, are you prepared for eternal suffering? Second, will you hold fast to the promises that God has made when natural suffering comes? Will you allow Him to use those natural sufferings to build your holiness, to bring about sanctification in your life and lean closer to Him? Third, proclamational suffering. When was the last time you experienced suffering for the gospel's sake? Because you proclaimed His message and it did what it many times does. It divides. Contemplate those today. Romans 8.17 tells us that we will be glorified with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him. I've done a pretty extensive exegetical work on that for school, but the text is not simply talking about having a cold or a broken down car. He suffered for the gospel, for the kingdom of God. Do you? My prayer this morning is that you would take these things as an encouragement and a challenge. So we do not seek after suffering, of course not. But we do seek after the spread of God's kingdom and the message of His good news, his, this gospel. And when we do that, inevitably, suffering does come. And it's through this suffering grafted into the family of God by the work of the divine man that we see our fourth and our final point. We see a new view of Jesus, our unashamed pioneer. So Hebrews 2 verse 10, in bringing sons and daughters to glory, it was appropriate that God would make the source, the pioneer, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was and always has been perfect. Its use here actually means that Jesus became fully qualified as the pioneer of man's salvation by undergoing and experiencing human sufferings inasmuch as through suffering is the way to salvation. Christ perfected the path for salvation to come. He is our pioneer. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's the same word used in the Greek in that one. Founder of our faith, pioneer of our faith, perfecter of our faith. 
those that trust in his name, his perfect work on their behalf, they're actually sanctified by him. Verse 11, they become holy. And in these holy people, these holy saints, these holy brothers and sisters, he's unashamed of them. What a glorious truth that is, is it not? That you've done nothing to garner your salvation. Absolutely nothing. Yet the one who did everything for you to have it, the one who drags you along towards holiness, the one who perfected the way for you to be saved through death, he's unashamed of you. He calls you his sibling. Verse 13, he presents you proudly, saying, here I am with all the children that God gave me. We may not yet see consummation of the kingdom. We may still see suffering in this world. We may still see hardships. We may still see persecution for speaking His name. We may yet to see all of creation subject to Him. But in verse 9, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, ready to inherit His kingdom and have all things become subject to Him and all His enemies made but a footstool. What's most beautiful about this text to me is that He sees you. And He proclaims you before the throne with all the children of God given to Him through suffering. The countless individuals from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, from every language, He says, here I am with all my people, those that no one can number, and I am unashamed of them. Quoting Dr. Cockerill again, he says, there is only one appropriate response to such generous beneficence. The sons and daughters must not be ashamed of Christ before a hostile world. God is not and will not be ashamed of those who persevere in loyalty to His Son. So the follower, so we follow the pioneer, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, the one who came to purchase you. You follow His example. And that may not even be in a way that we typically hear about. Hear these words from Jesus about why he came to earth. John 18, 37. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify the truth. Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 4, 43. It is necessary for me to evangelize the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. John 14, 7, I glorified you, Father, on the earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. So does your life, your salvation, mimic the one who perfected it, who pioneered it for you? Those statements of Jesus, do you testify the truth 
as he did? Do you seek to see those that are lost saved as he did? Do you go to the people and evangelize them about the kingdom of God as he did? Are you accomplishing the work which God has given you to do? I'm super out of time. But I want to give a short application here. Three things I want you to walk away with today. Okay, three alls. One, all Jesus. Your whole life. Seek Him day in and day out. Worship Him. Contemplate and wonder at the truth that you can be His sibling. That He's unashamed of all those that trust in His perfect salvation. Do not be ashamed of Him. Know Him. Love Him. Abide in Him. All Jesus. Two, all gospel. Recite it to yourself daily. Trust in its power to save. Build it into every single aspect of your life. Be filled up by it and let it overflow into your works and spill off of your lips with your words. Do not be ashamed of it. Live it. Speak it. Trust it. All gospel. And third, all obedience and worship. Live abandoned for Jesus and for His gospel. Seek to obey all that He has commanded you. Seek to worship Him in every arena and in every single way in your life. Bow in prayer. Lift up songs of praise. Study His word. Live with death in sight, looking forward to the consummation of His kingdom and the subjection of all things to Him and towards the glory that He will give those that He love and say, Here I am with my children. All obedience, all worship. And in light of that, I want to leave you with this. And those that are passing out communion could please come up and start to hand that out. Uh, Worship team, you guys can come too. It's a quote from late 19th century missionary C.T. Studd. He's one of those guys I like to call a gospel gangster. He says this, and I hope it emboldens you today. And in our three application points. So I know we'd be passing around trays and stuff, but please hear me. Please pay attention to this. C.T. Studd writes this. Believing the further delay would be sinful, some of God's insignificance and nobody's in particular, but trusting in our omnipotent God, have decided on certain simple lines according to the book of God, to make a definite attempt to render the evangelization of the world an accomplished fact. Too long we have been waiting for one another to begin. The time for waiting has passed. The hour of God has struck. In God's holy name, let us arise and build. We will not stand and build in the sand, but on bedrock sayings of Christ, and the gates and minions of hell shall not prevail against us. Should we fear such beings or men? Before the whole world, nay, before the sleepy, lukewarm, faithless, namby-pamby Christian world, we dare to trust our God. We will venture our all for Him. We will live and we will die for Him. We will do it with His joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting in our God than living a day trusting in man. 
And when we come to this position, the battle is already won. The end of the glorious campaign is in sight. We will have the real holiness of God, not the sickly stuff of talk and dainty words and petty thoughts. We will have a real holiness, one of daring faith of words and works for Jesus Christ. All Jesus, all gospel, all obedience and worship, a divine man, a crown that leads to subjection, a family united through suffering, and a view of Jesus, our unashamed pioneer. And now you hold in your hand two elements that represent his body and his blood. The divine man who brings many into glory, who stepped out of heaven to taste death and purchase your eternal and perfect salvation, and who is unashamed of you. He's invited you to dinner. Eat with me, and I'll give my life for you. So you take that bread, his body broken for you, and eat it. In that juice that represents his blood poured out for you and drink it. And we do this in remembrance of him. A divine man who earned a crown that leads to subjection of all things and built a family that is united through suffering. And that family who now sees a view of Jesus clearly their unashamed pioneer. All Jesus, all gospel, all obedience and worship. Let's do that together now.